From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, the next big thing is really small. Part two. Manufacturing an extracellular environment that has your signals at the right topography could help you either preserve stem cells in their stem cell state or induce stem cells to differentiate into a very specific type of cell. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. This is part two of my three-part exploration of nanotechnology and ophthalmology with Marco Zarbin. Nanoparticles have been used outside of ophthalmology for imaging. What are SPIO nanoparticles? What are quantum dots? And why does the transparency of the eye in the visible spectrum make quantum dots, Q dots, a particularly attractive technology? Well, SPIO stands for superparamagnetic iron oxide. And that's something uh, that you can see with uh, magnetic resonance imaging. And in fact, um, SPIO nanoparticles are approved by the FDA uh, for use as MRI contrast agents. And typically, uh, an SPIO nanoparticle has an iron oxide core that's coated with dextran, which, which makes it water-soluble. Um, and, uh, you know, you can label, for example, uh, stem cells and transplant them uh, into the brain and then visualize where those cells are with an MRI scan using the SPIO uh, nanoparticles. Of course, you can't tell if the stem cells are doing the right thing or uh, you really might not even be sure that it's the stem cells that have the particle because maybe the particle got phagocytized by an immune cell. So there are some some limitations, um, but it is... uh, it is a way, in principle, to keep track of transplanted cells. What, what quantum dots are, are, are light-emitting nanocrystals, uh, you know, in the order of, say, 10 nanometers. And they're, they're made of atoms um, from groups 2 through 6 or 3 through 5 in the periodic table. A typical one would be uh, cadmium selenium. And the advantage of quantum dots over SPIO nanoparticles is that you can actually visualize quantum dots with optical imaging. In other words, you could visualize them with an OCT test. Uh, But of course, since they're fluorescent, you could look in the eye and see them fluorescing. That's one of the advantages of using quantum dots uh, if you could do it uh, in ophthalmic imaging. Now, the, the thing that's you know, really unusual about quantum dots is that in contrast to most organic dyes and fluorescent proteins, um, quantum dots have durable fluorescence intensity. And, and so it doesn't fade. You know, you keep the stimulus light on the, on the target and you, you get very strong fluorescence. And anyone who's done uh, immunohistochemistry knows that that would be a very useful property. The, um, the other thing that's sort of useful about them is that they have a very broad 
uh, excitation band so you can get them to fluoresce with a wide wavelength of uh, of light, but they have very narrow emission spectra which means that you could have, if you had quantum dot, different kinds of quantum dots, you know, say one for oxidative damage, one for oxygen tension, one for pH, you could, you could stimulate all of them with white light, but they give you very unique emission signals. So you could keep track of multiple variables simultaneously. Um, now, the, the problem with the quantum dots is their potential for toxicity because they release cadmium and, and that can cause mitochondrial damage. And, and SPI nanoparticles can cause damage too. So I think some of the research now is um, trying to focus on what can you replace the moieties like cadmium with that are safe for living cells. But it won't surprise me if one day we, instead of just looking, say, at the retina and Brooks membrane with an OCT scan, um, where you can actually see quite a bit, we start to do biochemical looking rather than morphological looking. And the way we would do that would be to have uh, quantum dots as our signal, but connected uh, to different uh, moieties that say bind lipid or bind protein so that we can identify very specific biochemical changes in the retina or in Brooks membrane in association with different diseases like age-related macular degeneration. It's cool stuff. When most people think nanotechnology, they think of tiny mechanical machines. What is M slash N EMS and how might it be employed in ophthalmology? M EMS is microelectromechanical systems. N EMS is nanoelectromechanical systems. And this is the technology that's used to do um, chip manufacture. And essentially, it permits the construction of small devices with, uh, with the use of computer-aided design. And by um, repeated application of uh, procedures such as oxidation and photolithography, etching, diffusion, sputtering, chemo- chemical vapor deposition, uh, and epitaxy. And these are the processes by which these uh, micro- microelectronic circuits are built. If you've ever seen a picture of a computer chip that has all these different circuits in it, that's the way you build those things. Um, and, uh, of course, um, you can take that technology and use it to manufacture um, different surface topographies. For example, you can make uh, little ridges on the surface that have very precise width and separation from each other. Or you could make little squares on the surface that have a certain elevation and a certain uh, dimensionality to them. And in this way, you can mimic the signaling that exists in the extracellular matrix in situ. I mean, uh, if the, the way you might conceive of it is if you had a polymer, uh, say a, a um, uh, glycoprotein, uh, that has polar groups on it, and you have an extracellular matrix filled with this glycoprotein, that's the equivalent of having these polar groups spread out in a matrix at a regular repeating interval. Well, you could create that identical surface chemistry through just um, having a, a nano architecture uh, and decorating the, the uh, surface of this um, nano manufactured surface with the right polar groups. You just eliminate the protein part of it. While we're on the topic of engineered extracellular matrix, how is this done, and what does it have to do with guiding the differentiation of stem cells? Well, the um, stem cells 
uh, exist? You know, what, how is it that we keep stem cells, stem cells in a in a totally you know mature uh, organism? And uh, it it seems that stem cells are prevented from exiting their mitotic cycle uh, by specific environments called niches. And niches are composed of cellular and non-cellular elements. So when we think about the non-cellular elements that, that constitute biological signals that keep stem cells in their stem cell state, uh, that's where we're talking about the extracellular matrix. And, and w- what happens is that there are um, receptors on the surface of stem cells and, and in fact, all cells called integrins, and uh, at least all mammalian cells. And these integrins are transmembrane proteins that mediate the contact between the cells and the extracellular matrix. And, and when they find um, uh, extracellular matrix uh, ligands, say fibronectin, these integrin proteins then begin to cluster. And when they cluster, uh, they do things like make focal adhesion complexes and generate uh, second messenger signaling inside the cell that leads to reorganization of the cytoskeleton, uh, proliferation, migration, differentiation. So the extracellular matrix plays an important role in, in um, regulating the differentiation state of cells. And, and that's how um, manufacturing an extracellular environment that has your signals at the right topography could help you either preserve stem cells in their stem cell state or induce stem cells to differentiate into a very specific type of cell. And this concept is already being exploited in, in orthopedics, uh, where um, titanium oxide nanotubes have been made. And it turns out that if you space these tubes at 15 nanometers, which sort of interestingly corresponds to the diameter of an integrin extracellular domain, you get optimal cell differentiation for bone remodeling associated cells. So when you want to, you know, transplant cartilage, that sort of thing, having the right titanium surface can help give you a better post-operative result. And, and so presumably we could do that with artificial corneas or if we're transplanting RPE cells, an artificial Brooks membrane, you know, that type of thing. I was fascinated by your description of an allosteric photo switch. What is it and how might we use it? Well, it's an example of using a molecule as a machine. And, and I talk about it because this is what prosthetics is going to be like in the future. Um, so the, the allosteric photo switch um, is an azobenzene whitey. I should say an example of an allosteric photo switch is azobenzene. And azobenzene is a, is a molecule whose physical conformation uh, changes when you shine light on it. It can be in a cis or a trans configuration. When you shine uh, short wavelength high energy light, the azobenzene it goes into a cis configuration. And if you shine a longer wavelength light, say 500 nanometers, uh, then it'll go into a trans configuration. And as it turns out, the lower energy, more stable configuration for azobenzene is the trans state. So it'll spontaneously go into the trans state unless you're shining high-energy light on it. Now, the, the importance of this is that when it moves from the cis to the trans state, you create a molecule that's about seven-tenths of a nanometer longer. And so you can imagine then 
that this molecule can act as an arm that swings something into view or out of view. And, and both types of behaviors can be exploited. And, uh, and this is the work uh, that, that's been done by the group at Berkeley. So, for example, uh, if, you, if you connect the azobenzene uh, to a potassium channel with a maleamide moiety, uh, on one end of the azobenzene, and on the other end of the azobenzene, you have a quaternary ammonium group. Uh, when you put the molecule into a cis configuration, the quaternary ammonium group is swung into the ion channel and helps to block it and therefore turn off the permeability of the channel. And when it's in a trans configuration, the quaternary ammonium group is swung out of the channel and then you recover ion permeability. Uh, you could you could do the exact opposite, and they have with the uh, one of the glutamate receptors, where instead of having a quaternary ammonium group, uh, what you have is a, a glutamate uh, agonist. And when the molecule goes into the uh, cis configuration, the agonist goes into the glutamate um, agonist binding pocket and activates the glutamate channel. And when it goes into a trans configuration, you remove the agonist, and now you're into the inactive configuration of the channel. All of this work is intended to make it so that you can make a cell sensitive to light. Now, of course, our photoreceptors are sensitive to light, but most of our ganglion cells are not. There actually is a subset that is light sensitive. And the, the idea here is when you have degenerative diseases like retinitis pigmentosa, where you lose the photoreceptors, and so you basically lost the light-sensitive part of your retina, uh, if you transfect the ganglion cells with these light-sensitive ion channels, you can uh, induce light sensitivity in the ganglion cells and induce action potential firing by stimulating the cells with light. And the kind of the brilliance of this idea is that um, you immediately reacquire, in principle, uh, about a million light-sensitive cells. Um, now, of course, there's a lot of image processing that goes on between the photoreceptors and the ganglion cell. Um, so the kind of vision that one could get uh, is, is not clear. But the, the idea of inducing light sensitivity with this technology has been proven uh, in, in fish. Um, so there's no question that it can work. And in fact, the, the, uh, the group at Berkeley has now made it so that you no longer need to use viral transfection in order to get these uh, light-sensitive ion channels into cells. Now, uh, we shouldn't mention this without also mentioning uh, an alternative approach um, using something called channelopsin, uh, which is uh, a light-gated ion channel also. Uh, it's, it's different. Um, from what we've been describing, because it comes with its own chromophore, which is an all-transretinaldehyde that um, is actually permanently attached to the to the ion channel, and you can um, take this technology and induce light sensitivity in ganglion cells or even in bipolar cells. In fact, there's some very uh, brilliant work uh, that's just come out where uh, they use. Um, these uh, particular ion channels to uh, reintroduce light sensitivity into the residual cone photoreceptors of animals that have uh, retinal degenerative disease, and they recover uh, evidence of light sensitivity. So uh, I think that when we think about regenerative medicine, um, working at the nanoscale, 
I think this is the kind of thing that we should be looking for in the future. We'll end our interview here today and pick it up at this point next time. Marco Zarbin is the Alphonse Sinati Lion's Eye Research Professor and Chair of the Institute of Ophthalmology and Visual Science at the New Jersey Medical School, University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey in Newark, New Jersey. His paper, Nanomedicine and Ophthalmology, The New Frontier, appears in the August 2010 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Zarbin or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.